Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 376 with Todd Rose. We are talking about Dark Horses, not the song from Katy Perry. Are you ready for Perfect Storm? That's been in my head a lot as I've been prepping this episode. But no, we're not talking about that, but rather people who were super successful that nobody saw it coming. It was a surprise, like, well, where did they come from? And turns out there are some patterns, some principles that they followed and apply that we can do the same. And we have a master researcher from Harvard, Todd Rose, who's put together the picture associated with it. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you. You'll learn one, the implications of pursuing personal fulfillment versus power, wealth, or prestige. Two, the most important step to understanding what fulfills you. And three, why fulfillment isn't just for the rich. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F376. Now here's Todd's story. Todd Rose was a high school dropout with D-minus grades and a GPA of 0.9. He caused a ruckus in class and was suspended multiple times. He married his teenage girlfriend and by the age of 21, was trying to support a wife and two sons on welfare and minimum wage jobs. But in less than a decade, Rose was able to turn his life around from a dead-end factory job to the most influential spheres of American academia. Today, he's the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and co-founder of Populous, a nonprofit organization dedicated to transforming how we learn, work, and live. His previous book, The End of Average, was a bestseller, and his talks have been featured at TEDx, the Aspen Ideas Festival, South by Southwest, Google, Microsoft, Pixar, Costco, J.P. Morgan, Chevron, and Colin Powell's America's Promise. So thanks to Todd for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Todd. Todd, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom here. But first, I want to hear a bit about your story because it is, it's a unique one with some twists and, and inspiration. Can you lay it on us? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, you know, today I'm a, a professor at Harvard, but um, I have the distinction of also being a high school dropout. Actually, it's even worse than that. I, I dropped out with a, a 0.9 GPA, which I really believe you have to work super hard uh, to do that poorly. Well, and I, I'm curious, and, and did you or, or did just how did it how did you find yourself with a point nine GPA? It was interesting. Like from a very early age, you know, I grew up in in rural America, and the school I was going to was all about conformity, and it just didn't fit. And so it it kind of snowballed, right? Where it just it doesn't work, and then it really doesn't work, and then you're like, screw it, I'm just going to do what I need to do. And like, I, you know, I think if I would have just shown up in class enough, they probably would have passed me just to get me out of their class, right? But um. So, you know, that I did that and then ended up, um, my girlfriend got pregnant and she's still my wife today. And we um, ended up on welfare with two kids, working a string of minimum wage jobs before realizing, like, I got to do something different with my life. Yeah. So that was, yeah, so that was <laughs> the short version. And then ended up going to night school at Weber State University, an open enrollment university, mainly out of desperation, right? Not because I had some grand vision for what my life was going to be through that process, really discovered who I was, discovered what mattered to me, and was able to turn that into something which, in my case, turned out to be academia of all places, which I just couldn't believe at the time. So I, I ended up getting my doctorate at Harvard, 
did a postdoc at the Center for Astrophysics and then came back as a faculty member. Yeah, and I just intrigued with this astrophysics fellowship at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Okay, wow, there you go. It was it was a funny thing because I, it actually came out of um, a hunch that I had that I was working with an astrophysicist named uh, Matt Schneps. And we had this hunch based on some of the genetic and neuroscience work we'd done that actually people who had trouble reading would have very specific talents with visual stuff. And there was no better place than in astrophysics. So like we, I got hmm. fun. We went there. I did a postdoc. I got to learn a lot about science, truthfully, really really taught me how to be a scientist more than anywhere else, but got to study astrophysicists and how they detect black holes. And, um, and it was, it was so cool. It was, it was just, to me, just like this luxury for a couple of years. That was just fantastic. Well, that is really cool. Well, and I want to dig into a little bit of the, the Weber state part of it. You know, I, this is a whole nother conversation, but you know, I think people talk about the, to what extent is, is America, United States, you know, still a place where if you've got, you know, grit and hustle and determination, you can, you know, make something of your, your life and yourself, regardless of the, the circumstances you were born into versus are, are the scales, you know, wildly uneven. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's a giant conversation for a whole podcast, but I, I want to get your sense of, so there you were, and you sort of found the, the something inside of you to, to stick with it. Uh, what was that something? Well, I mean, at first it really was desperation because uh, uh, no kidding, the the last job I had before I decided I was going to go to uh, college, I, I actually was working in a factory and then it was a minimum wage job. And then this home nurse assistant job came open. But no kidding, I had to drive around and give people enemas. That was mm -hmm. my job. And I was like, look, it, it's honest work and it, it's important that someone does it. But like, I was like, there has to be more than this. And so... For me, it was largely like my dad was the first high school graduate in our family. And I remember when I was in middle school, he came home one day and he was a mechanic. <clears throat> and he said, look, for me, I think there's something more. And he said, I, I, I'm going to go to school. Well, no one in any of our families had gone to college. That, that wasn't a thing that you do. And yeah, he had figured it out. And his parents actually weren't happy about it. Mm. They thought he was kind of, they were, he was like big time, big timing them. Mm. Uh, and so yet he still, he did that. He became a uh, mechanical engineer and he, he's one of the most accomplished airbag designers in the country. Now he, he's got lots of patents. He's done amazing work. And I watched what education did in terms of changing our lives and life circumstances. And so I realized that that's probably the way to go. Right. right. So I knew that much. What I didn't know is like, okay, where does this path go? So I got my GD, I went there didn't want to go back. And what was remarkable, it was really, it's an open enrollment school. It's take all comers, um, which I think is the future of our country, frankly, is where the innovation has to, to go. But it was actually the, the, the relationships I developed with, with faculty and people who taught me how to think about who I am and helped me make, like I think, kind of interesting decisions about what would help me get on a better path for myself. But as I developed my abilities there, I went from thinking I was a terrible learner and didn't have a lot of talent to thinking, actually, maybe I'm pretty good at a couple of things to thinking, actually, maybe I'm reasonably smart. And that was just a process, but it was just a remarkable one for me and something I'm always grateful for. And you've done a lot of work there associated with the end of average and how we're not average sized people. We're not average learners. And, and that's silly. And we got to really get customized on, on different dimensions of, uh, of the brain and people uh, and how they're operating, which is, which is really cool stuff. So could you orient us a little bit to to what you're doing now at Harvard? They didn't want to talk about your book. 
Sure. So at Harvard, I do a, a couple of things. Um, I'm the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program, which is this really cool interdisciplinary program that brings neuroscience and psychology to issues of learning, both in schools, but also workplaces and things like that. And then I also run this thing called the Laboratory for the Science of Individuality. And in the lab, just as you were saying, like, so there's this cool revolution going on in science that most people don't know about, uh, which is we're, we're done studying averages, groups of people, right? Like it turns out they, that kind of science doesn't really predict very much about individual people's lives. And that's been true in everything from studying individual cells to cancer progression to how kids learn. And so everything that people hear about, whether it's personalized medicine, personalized nutrition, personalized education, is all coming because this science is giving us very, very actionable insights about individuals. So we contribute to that science. Um, and then the third thing I do is I have a think tank that does a lot of my public-facing sort of work called Populous. I think academia is a fantastic place for science and reflection, but isn't the best at action, right? It's it's just not what it's built for. So created this thing called Populous, and our 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 purpose is to get these ideas to the public in a way that helps them be part of deciding where we go as a society. Because all of this technology and know-how is bringing deep personalization to everything that we do as a people that could turn out well, right? It could, it could be really, really valuable, but it also could become incredibly manipulative, right? It could be incredibly divisive in terms of the haves and have-nots. So populists exist to ensure that we take the right path. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Well, so let's talk about your book here, Dark Horse, Achieving Success Through the Pursuit of Fulfillment. Sort of what's your main thesis here? The basic thesis is this that we, we've been told that the way to be successful is essentially follow the standard path, right? Um, and try to be the same as everybody else, only better. And the thesis is basically, if you want the most surefire way to be excellent and happy, it's actually to prioritize personal fulfillment and make choices off of that. Okay, so you're prioritizing personal fulfillment as opposed to what are the, the top alternatives that get prioritized instead of personal fulfillment? Yeah, well, it, it, and this is what we feel like society pressures us into, right? So usually it's some combination of wealth, status, or power. You think about picking the kind of college major you're going to take or the job you're going to do or the promotion you might go after. And there's a lot of pressure for prestige and you know showing that you make a lot of money. And that kind of view of success is very comparative, right? It's like, Am I better than somebody else? Do I make more than somebody else? We know this, right? It's like mm -hmm. keeping up with Joneses. Like, we, we, we know this. It's also like terribly zero sum, right? We tend to think somebody has to lose for me to win. Personal fulfillment just orients things internally, right? It, it, it's about achieving things that matter to you. And, and they're very, it's very personal because the things that will matter to you aren't the same as the things that matter to me. Oh, that's, that's cool. You know, this reminds me of, I remember I, I had a, a buddy in high school. He loved cars, just, just all about cars. and. He knew the ins and the outs of the V6s, the V8s, the V4s, the, the, all this stuff. And, uh, and I don't, not so much know cars. And I remember his family, and, and he said it was because, oh, it's my Indian parents. So I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I'm sure people of all ethnicities and races, you know, can do this yeah, to their children. But uh, he said that he wanted to do something with cars, like go in a car dealership and, and do, you know, repair or sort of, you know, body work and, and retool them, make them awesome. You know, this kind of vision or dream. For him and cars. And his parents said, yes, yes, that's fine. You can do that. Uh, but you have to go to medical school first. <laughs> <laughs> medical school to be a good mechanic or yeah. something. Like cars. Right. But that's a, that's a perfect example. Right. And, and the truth is, like, most of these parents are doing it not because they, they don't want their kids to be happy, but because they, 
they are convinced that there there are a handful of paths that really bring stability, right? That like, and and it's like think, well, look, if you just go to medical school, you're gonna have a great job, you're gonna get paid a lot, and then you can kind of dabble in the things that make you happy on the side, right? And and the truth is that was actually a pretty good suggestion for a long time in this country, right? Through most of our sort of industrial age, there were just a few paths. My argument is simply that that's really not true anymore. And that in an age of AI and automation and a very diverse economy, this idea of figuring out like you love cars more than anything else. Let's have that person go ahead and find a career and a life that that revolves around that because they're going to be deeply engaged, which means they're going to be more productive and they're going to be happy. Yeah, well, yes, this has reminded me of some of the, the Sean Acor research with the happiness advantage um, in terms of the engagement and the happiness and, and how it's all kind of linked up there. And so so you say that uh, these these dark horses, which uh, you define as, you know, folks who just succeeded and, and no one saw them coming, right? Like, it's like, surprise, I have huge accomplishments now and, and you never expected that from me. Yeah, and what's so funny is, so this whole thing, it didn't start out meaning to be a book at all. It started out as a project at, at Harvard where um, we were just kind of interested, like, why, like, we all know about dark horses and when they're successful, we... There's usually some media attention. People get excited about it, like, wow, that's amazing. And then that's it. We feel comfortable just walking away as if there's nothing we can learn from them because mm. it seems like one-off, right? Like, oh, it's too risky, too, like, they were lucky or super talented or whatever excuse we make. And we thought, maybe that's true, but let's just study them. So we, we thought maybe someone's looked at them and no one had. So we um, ended up studying as a wider range of fields and people from all walks of life as we could. And after, after studying hundreds of people, I was looking for, do they have anything in common? And I have to say, like, I'd like to tell you that I knew that it would be fo- like prioritizing fulfillment. Not even close. I, I like to, before we start any project, write down my hypotheses. So I hold myself to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, of <laughs> like, course I always do. It'd be end yeah, up this like, way. Not revise it after <laughs> like, it's new. Right. Um, and so here's, here's what I thought it would be. I thought to be a dark horse, you would have to have a certain kind of personality, right? You'd have to be someone who doesn't mind bucking the system, Hmm. like a Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, because it's kind of rough, right? Like you're going to go against the grain and people aren't going to be that happy. It didn't take long for us to realize that just simply wasn't true. Like, I mean, 20 people in, you realize their personalities are all over the place. And the thing that was crazy to me is that I kept asking them questions about, like, like, I wanted to know where there are tricks about how they got great at things and all they wanted to talk about was how they figured out what really mattered to them <laughs> and 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 then they would use things like fulfillment they'd talk about fulfillment or meaning and purpose and and i was like no this can't be it right like I, it seemed too squishy and like fluffy and i wanted i'm usually a numbers guy like all of my research is quantitative up until this point and so i just didn't want to hear it <laughs> but it just kept coming through like they, they prioritize personal fulfillment over someone else's view of success. And that is why they end up on these very individual paths, right? And it's also, we believe, what allows them to be successful and happy. Interesting. Well, in, in a way, it sounds sort of too simple and you know, somewhat uh, squishy, but you, you mentioned that they, they kind of kept coming back to kind of tools or approaches, like how they came to these discoveries about themselves so could you give us a, an example and, and, and tell us some of these strategies? Yeah, exactly as you were saying. Like, well, it's one thing for someone to say, well, look, it's all about living a fulfilling life. I'm like, so is that like what you say after you're successful, right? Like, no, like right. you your own history. So we've really pushed hard. Like, 
And you realize, like, no, they're they're prioritizing it early. And so what we were interested in is, well, okay, how is this not like fall your bliss off a cliff, right? Because it's not the first time someone said, mm-hmm. you know, pursue happiness, follow whatever. So we were digging into like, okay, what is it that makes this actionable, right? Like really. And so it turns out there's a handful of things that they know that really does make this what we call like a dark horse mindset a reliable path to success. And the first thing, and like, if you don't get this right, like we have plenty of non-examples, right? Where if you don't have this, like it doesn't turn out very well, which is they have a deep, deep understanding of what really motivates them. And that sounds so simple, right? Like who doesn't know what motivates them? But I would actually argue most of us don't really know what motivates us, right? And like, all you have to do is look at the 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 engagement research, right? That like Gallup shows that the vast majority of Americans are disengaged in their jobs. Something like 30%, I don't know the exact number, are like, they called actively disengaged, which sounds kind of crazy to me, but actively disengaged. A majority of kids are disengaged in school. In this country. So like something's wrong there. If we were so smart about what motivates us, wouldn't we have made better decisions? So dark horses do something that I thought was really, really interesting, which is when we think about what motivates us, most of us go to the way society talks about it, which is these big universal things like, okay, are you Love. more about collaboration or competition or whatever? And some of those are true, right? But what we found with dark horses is that motivation is very, very individual that people are motivated by a wide range of things, some of them big and you know universal, and some of them are very, very specific to the individual. All that matters is that you figure that out and you figure out that mosaic of what motivates you because then you're going to make decisions that sort of check those boxes, right? When you've got a choice between A and B and A checks 10 of your motives and B checks three, you know which one to pick. And so that, that starting point of figuring out what we called your micro-motives is by far the most important first step. And, um, and when you say micro motives, and you're saying, hey, it's it's much more individualized and specific mm-hmm. and precise than competition. So could you could you lay it out for us, either yourself or, or a few of your dark horses? Like, hey, this is what a micro motive sounds like. Like, you know, it's not competition. It's like seeing my opponent squashed <laughs> on the mat of wrestling. I don't know. It's even crazier than that. Okay, so. Again, certainly like competition and those things are true, right, for people. But we, we, and we can imagine that being a motive. But what about aligning physical objects with your hands? Like that, there we go. Saying it right now, I'm like, who in the world would be motivated by that? Like truly motivated. Not like it's a nice thing to have, but like I need this in my life, right? So, like, but they're misaligned. Do you mean like the the silverware drawer is askew or, or, or what do you mean by aligning objects with your hands? Like, for example, becoming an engineer that is actually aligning copper wire to fiber optic to, to solve the, one of the biggest problems in the telecommunications industry 30 years ago, that kind of stuff. And, and this guy, then we talked to this guy who this is a primary motive for him, among other things, right? So he's this engineer, but then when that doesn't, like, he gets out of it because, you know, for a number of reasons, but he is now the top upholstery repair person in New York City which you'd never think of those two jobs as being like the same, right? Except for a poultry repair is in, is terribly difficult. And you're fixing family heirlooms and leather where you've got to align these things. And he is just so happy and so good at what he does. We also- I love about, this so much. It's, it's, it's precise and beautiful. Please continue. More, more, more micromotives. How about, again, we, we can imagine something like collaboration being great, but what about someone who truly is motivated by organizing people's closets? So right. we- we talked to a woman who was a political rock star. 
who had basically worked at local, state, federal, all the way into the a great job at the White House. So good at what she did. And she realizes one day as she's leaving the White House, she gets asked to r- help run B- uh, Bloomberg's government in New York. And she realizes she can't get out of bed and she can't figure out like why, like this should be the next step. She comes to the realization of, of what's missing um, as she's organizing her own closet. And for her, everything is about being able to create order on behalf of other people, right? The, the benefits to other people that come from having their lives have order and meaning like that. And she realized everything she'd loved early on in politics was about that, not about beating the competition, not about winning, but this. And as she rose in the ranks, you get less and less opportunity to do that. So she says, but what, are you, what am I supposed to do with that, right? Like what, except for she realized, wait a minute, there's a whole field called professional organizers. She didn't even realize they existed. She figures out, wait a minute, this is like what I'm born to do. Like I love helping people and I love organizing. And she literally loves closets more than anything because she sees it as the most intimate form of like organizing for people. So she starts a, a company and now she's one of the most prominent in both New York and Florida. She makes great money and she just loves what she does. So over and over again, we found that what dark horses did that got them on this right path is they, they really had this deep understanding of that quirky collection of things that matters to them. And even if they don't matter to anybody else, that's okay, because it's what gets them out of bed. And so they're going to use those micromotives to start making decisions in their life, big and small. And that's what gets you on a path of fulfillment. All right. So aligning physical objects with your hands, uh, creating order on behalf of others. Uh, Let's hear a few more micromotives. So some of them are, are get a little more familiar. You'd think like we, we talked to a, a woman who uh, she owns a, a flower shop, florist stuff and a, a decorator like that. And she she has this really interesting motive where it's like she likes to arrange floral stuff, but it has to include like non-floral stuff. And she has this really weird like combination of things. And like if she's just arranging flowers, that's not good enough. And if she was just doing stuff with non-floral, that's not good enough. Um, when you combine the two, it's magic for her. Another one, which I thought was remarkable, I just couldn't, for me, none of these things are actually motivating, right? So it's like, I'm like, are you sure? Right? Like, and then you, when you, when you talk to them and they, and they just like, they light up and they can't imagine a world where they don't get to do this. So imagine someone being motivated by literally holding paper in their hands. Okay. Okay. So, well, there's some good papers out there. I, I could, I could, yeah, I could right? get fired up if it's the right paper. <laughs> Interviewed a woman who was, it's one of the most famous art conservators in the country. But for her, it, it, it's not any kind of art. It has to be paper. And I mean, her ability, like she said, look, to, to be able to hold it and its history and everything it means. And the, 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 like the, and she talks about it in great tactile detail. And for her, um, she wouldn't even take a promotion or move on to something else that, that, that would take her away from doing that, right? Now, as a result, she has actually been responsible for the restoration of some of the most prominent paintings and other kinds of things uh, in the country. Like time and time again, this is it. We all have things big and small that motivate us. And if we if we turn to what society tells us should matter, we get in trouble, right? Because we're not really listening to who we are. Now, I would say, you know, probably the next question, because I know you're all about practical stuff and application is like, well, wait a minute, like, how do I start to figure this out then? I will absolutely ask you that question. But if I could first get even some more micro motives when it comes to uh, several, those that you mentioned, they, they seem to fall into the category of, you know, I guess maybe, you know, sensory, uh, tactile, 
Uh, could you share a few that are maybe not something that you can see and smell and, and, and touch? Yeah. So um, we talked to a woman who probably most things end up manifesting in some ways, having some physical interaction with it. But talked to a woman who was actually one of my favorite people. She loved music. Now, that, that seems like, well, of course, like, why wouldn't that be motivated? Except for she she doesn't like being in front of people. She doesn't like she doesn't want to be famous. She doesn't even want to sing. She can't sing. She has this very specific combination of wanting to be involved in music, but at like a production level. Like I want to be able to like take something that someone's creating and make it better. Right. And it's really weird. It's like very, very specific for her, right? But combined for her, it was with this but it has to be for somebody else's benefit. Like somebody has to be moved by it. But again, she doesn't want to create. That's not what she does. It's not what she wants. So she goes on to become, she starts from nothing, like absolutely nothing. She ends up becoming uh, Prince's sound engineer for Purple mm-hmm. Rain. And she does these spectacularly great things. That in, in the book, her story is laid out in great detail, so I don't want to steal too much more. But um, it, she's just remarkable. We, we have some of the more um, traditional ones, right? So like... Um, Talk to a, a guy who was grip a blue collar town, came from nothing, and just scraped by and and built up a little mini empire of uh, restaurants and bars and real estate, right? And he was like kind of king and big fish, small pond, right? Mm-hmm. And you could imagine just that's that's it, that's great. I mean, everyone's like, you've really made something yourself, but he knew like there was this creative motive that he he didn't understand. That he, he knew he had to have something in this create creative space, but there was nothing there. So he used to have like jazz night at this blue collar bar and like people were like, why are we doing this? Like <laughs> nobody wants to hear it and he'd make him listen to it. And it's bad for, you know, the bottom line. But, so he wakes up one day and says, look, I, I've got to figure out what this is. And he actually makes a pretty bold move. He sells everything and he moves to Boston and he's like, look, if I'm going to figure this out, I got to be in the city. Anyway, flash forward through some crazy um, things that he ends up doing, he turns out to become um, one of the top bespoke tailors in the country. He, it turns out he, he has this amazing love for like, like fabric and creating stuff for people and create, like it, it's remarkable. Um, in fact, I, it was the first bespoke thing I ever bought. I had him uh, create a jacket for me. So I'm like, he's very, very good. And um, But so it, this range of things, like, and, and here, here's the thing nobody can tell you what yours are. They just can't. There's no test to take. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's no, like, because they come from all kinds of places. Some of them might be innate. Some of them might be learned. It doesn't matter, right? If they get you out of bed in the morning, you got to understand them. Right. Uh, Well, I'd be curious. What's yours, Todd? I've thought a lot about that. So I have, I think mine are are, uh, probably common for a lot of people, but like, so I have for sure the, the case that I am, I get bored easier than anybody I know. So like, that is a pretty big one, but I, like I have to have a lot of novelty in my life. And one thing that I realized is that that causes a lot of problems if you're not careful, right? Like mm-hmm. sometimes you got to just keep doing things, right? You can't just keep bouncing around because you get bored with something. So you have to, you have to figure out how to harness that. I absolutely cannot have a boss. I just, I cannot have somebody telling me what to do. Like, I think that's, that's like the ability to have like control over the choices that I make matters more to me than anything else. Like I would take I would take so much less money. I would take uh, to, to have that kind of autonomy is just so important. And the the other thing is, is that like I have this weird mix of what feels like um, contradictory motives. Right. So on the one hand, I need autonomy. I just need it. On the other hand, like I deeply, deeply, deeply enjoy 
collaboration to the point where everything I do, I, I try to force to say, like, I want to have a partner with it. I want to find someone to work with on these things because it's just so meaningful to me. Right. So it's a fun kind of like, wait, but I want to have, I want like a complete autonomy, but at the same time, I really need other people and I want to work together. So you got to, you got to figure that out. Those ones are the big ones for me. I do actually have, like, I keep saying competition's not a, you know, it's, like, it's definitely a motive. I definitely have that kind of streak. Um, and what you just try to harness it to be like compete with yourself rather than other people. That's cool. Okay. Well, now at last, yes, micro motives, that's kind of what they look, sound, feel like in practice. And, and how do folks go about uh, discovering and, and zeroing in on what they are for them? So here's the thing. And we've road tested this, not just on dark horses, but like, you know, frog marched a bunch of our family members and other friends and like, test this out and see if it really works. Let's see what happens. But um, I'm going to give you something. It's, it's like incredibly simple. All I want is for people to try it. Like just, just try it a couple of times and you'll be really shocked. So a very easy thing to do is to just think for not very hard, but think a little bit about a couple of things that you actually enjoy doing, like really enjoy doing and ask yourself why. And, and the why is everything here. So most of the time when, when we engage in some kind of activity and we like it, we're like, yes, I really love, let's say, I, like, for example, I, I really love football. I'd even say I'm pretty passionate about football. So what we end up doing is attaching, and we call it passion for something, but we, we attach it to that thing, right? And that's usually the, the sort of grain size that we deal with, right? Oh, I really love football and, you know, I like watching TV, whatever, okay? But if you ask yourself why, right? So is it the competition? Is it the teamwork? Is it the strategy involved? Is it playing outdoors? You know, there, there's a whole range of, of things for like why you might actually like football, right? Um, and if, if you start getting a handle on those, the, that's really closer to your motives, right? And if you do that a few times, you start to suss out like some common themes. And what's really important about that is that once you realize why it is you like these things, that's portable, right? So let's say, for example, like, actually, I can't play football, right? Like, I'm just too old now. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd get hurt in two seconds and like, you know, I'd rather have a, a healthy back and knees than do that. But it's like, if I know why I liked it, I can actually like make choices because there are other activities and things I can do that check those boxes, right? So it sounds really simple. I think you'll be shocked at how much value it gives you in a hurry about figuring out why you care about the things you care about. Mm, this is great. Well, well, thank you, Todd. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. You know, actually, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that... Um, I think matters the most to me. And if there's like one thing I could get across is this, like when we think about the pursuit of fulfillment, it, it can easily sound like a luxury item, right? Like, like, okay, after I get all the things taken care of, I need to, it's sort of like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy or something like that's it, right? Like fulfillments for rich people or for people that have it made, or whatever. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think this understanding of like making choices based on personal fulfillment, it, it matters most to people who, who don't have a safety net. Who, who really have to hit home runs on choice after choice after choice because there is no backup plan. Because there, knowing who you are really and being able to make decisions on that puts you in contexts that are going to be engaging where you're going to be more productive and you can string those together. I think it's the safest way to a successful life. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah. So I, I love quotes. So I'm like a collector of quotes. So for me, this was actually like hard to, to narrow down, but here, here's the one I think is, is awesome. It's by uh, Joss Whedon. If you, if you know the producer, so it's remember to always be yourself unless you suck. 
<laughs> and I like that quote because I think it's both true and then true, right? Like, yeah, we always tell people like, know who you are, be great. But like, if there's like some some really dark stuff inside, yeah, let's let's, let's work on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's true for competence as well. It's just like, no, this is my style. This is how I do my thing. It's like, well, it, it's nobody likes that in terms of like right. if, if it's like a a consumer or, or kind of commercial application market. It's like, well, I mean that that may well be, but you know, it's not working for the people who, who buy it. So you got to change it. That's right. And how about a favorite study? That's actually an interesting one. And basically I would pick, I'll give you a specific one, but I would pick almost any of them in this science I'm a part of because like when we get away from group averages and we study you on your own terms, we find remarkable things. Like it turns out individuals aren't snowflakes, right? Like you can actually find patterns and it matters. It matters for how we keep you healthy and how you develop and what you can become. So my favorite one of them, um, because this is pretty actionable, is the new work out of Israel um, by Aaron Segel on um, personalized nutrition. So, you know, we have the glycemic index, which is supposed to tell us how certain foods elevate our blood sugar, right? And it's really important for like pre-diabetes, diabetes, and just health and wellness in general. It turns out the glycemic index, it's all averages. Like on average, a potato will elevate your blood sugar by a certain amount, right? So what these folks found is there's literally nobody that responds the way the glycemic index says you should respond. Nobody, right? We're so individual. But importantly, they were able to use the science and and some machine learning stuff to be able to create incredibly precise predictions for every single person. So uh, they turned that into an app. I I actually have no commercial interest in it, but I I did buy it. It's called Day 2. It's amazing. So like one concrete example for me, so... They tell you on average that if you want to keep your blood sugar low to, to eat grapefruit, it's supposed to be really terrific. For me, it turns out to be the single worst thing I can possibly mm. eat. It elevates my blood sugar more than chocolate cake. Wow. And so what I love about this is it's an example where understanding individuality, it matters, right? Your individuality matters and that it's not noise and we can build systems that are responsive to you and to everybody else. Like we don't have to choose anymore. This is just mind-blowing in terms of its implications uh, over the next century of the boy technological and human progress. So just mm-hmm. thinking about that. So, but, but so one, maybe more a pedestrian question. How, how does an app figure out how much a grapefruit is spiking your blood sugar? So you have to send it. So you get blood work done, add gut biome, and a bunch of other things. So that rather than reducing you to a type, they actually collect a lot of information on you, right? And it's analyzed, and then it's fed through the app, right? So there's there's some some crunching done on the back end, and the app's just how I interface with it. It just, but it helps me basically anytime I want to eat, I know exactly what's going to do to me. Um, and I think it's what I think is so cool about that is, I mean, pre-diabetes and diabetes is like a massive problem in the United States, right? And you realize, wait a minute. We're blaming everyone for their poor habits, which maybe that's true, and I'm sure it's part of it, but actually we're literally telling them, we're giving them advice that guarantees, guarantees that we're not optimizing their their nutrition, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so for me, I, I, I'm excited about the future. I mean, there's a lot of dangers and challenges in this brave new personalized sort of society, but the idea that like we can understand you as an individual and build systems that are responsive to you and get the most out of you is really remarkable. Yeah, that's that's wild. So day two is is generating individualized profile of you based upon your genetics and your gut biome and and your blood stuff. Yep. 
And, okay. and it literally doesn't matter if there's anybody else like you, you can still have a mm-hmm. optimized nutrition. And we can do this, by the way, we do this for cancer treatment. We can do this for um, how you develop. We can do this for how you best learn. Um, this is the future. That's wild. What's something, from the food perspective, is there something you can eat that um, makes you feel awesome and you wouldn't even know it had you not done this uh, adventure with day two? Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, um, and what's really funny is my wife did it and we just have like completely different, like trying to figure out what we're going to cook at night now is like, huh, which one of us is going to spike our blood sugar, right? Like, but um, but uh, so what's really crazy about this, so you could imagine, uh, uh, so rum, right? It's sugar cane, Delicious. right? Yeah, but it's sugar cane. Like you would think like that should be like, you're just guaranteeing you're going to spike your blood sugar. Nope. It doesn't spike my blood sugar at all. So I'm like made in the shade. This is fantastic. So there's these things like that, which I can do. I mean, it's probably not making me healthy, but like it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't hurt me as much as it should. Um, the other thing is like, this is kind of crazy, but um, I can have soft serve ice cream as long as it's chocolate and not vanilla. Like wow. it's that that it's that fine tuned and you can actually so, feel it in your body like you, yeah. you you're, you're, you will have a different sensation in your in your head and your yeah. feeling of fatigue versus sharpness fatigue thing that's so clear and i would have never honestly never done it because i don't really have i don't have like diabetes or anything like that but like so i never really appreciated the toll that spiking blood sugar takes on your body right and mm-hmm. if you understand the sort of science of it it's like pretty obvious it's it's a very very taxing mechanism and so like even people who aren't even near getting like pre-diabetes, it's like it is it, it is what it drives fatigue, it drives and it's just simply like optimizing against your own individuality. I just can't believe how much like cleaner my mind feels. I don't know how else to explain it. It's just like I feel cleaner and clearer and sharper, and to the point where there, there's no chance I would go back. And so it's like I cling to this, like I can't believe it, and it's so neat. And then I think, wait a minute. If we're not careful, we're going to live in a world where people can afford it, get this kind of information, yeah. right? And people that can't keep getting the stupid faxed copy of like, you know, here's the glycemic index. You should eat this, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it, it doesn't have to be. Okay. But, yeah, that makes it a lot more real. We described populace at the, at the top of this. I thought, well, okay, that, that sounds important. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. that is, this is crazy. It has Thank to be you. about all of us. It has to, mm-hmm. and it can um, but we've got to make good choices. All right. And how about a favorite book? Can I give you two or do I have to really? Oh, sure. Okay. So one is my sort of nerdy one, but I think it's really important called The Logic of Scientific Discovery by Karl Popper. It's the only philosophy book that I actually like. Um, and it really taught me what it means to do science versus not. Um, and it really changed how I do my work. But my one of my favorite books of all time is called uh, City of Thieves uh, by David Benioff, who most people would know from Game of Thrones. Uh, but it's a fantastic book. Just love it. The fiction book. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit? So I have, um, <laughs> I do two things. So I'm trying to sneak in a bunch of extra things. One of the most important things that I ever figured out, because because I'm, like, I actually have, like, really terrible, like, working memory. Like, if, if you ask me right now, like, hey, when we get done with this, would you remember to email me, blah, blah, blah? Like, there's a good chance I'm not going to remember to do that, right? So organization was really important to me. Um, so one of the things that I do that I, I I always do is spend the first half hour of every day organizing my priorities so that the rest of the day, I'm actually doing things that matter to me rather than things that get put on my plate that are like first in kind of first out, like, oh no, this is really pressing. It's like, sure, but was it, mat- did it matter to me, right? And this helps me stay prioritized and accomplish the things I want to. The second thing that I do is 
um, related to my need for novelty, which is I really, really, really don't want to become that person that's so narrow in what I know and do because I just don't think that's good. And I don't think, I just think you don't get any inspiration or new ideas just by like doubling down on one narrow uh, piece of the world. So I tried once a week, I, 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 at least once a week, I read or watch something that is absolutely not part of my uh, wheelhouse. And that doesn't mean like high culture and something like that. Sometimes it's just anything, right? Just just stay mm-hmm. out of the, the same. Like what's up with this Kardashians business? <laughs> right? People, some people seem, I, I'm curious, how does it get, how do you get prompted? You know, because I think so often it's like, that's not interesting to me. Therefore, I'm not going to engage. How do you kind of get over that hump? So I have a really weird way of doing this. Uh, I don't know. Like, I'm probably revealing too much about myself, but like, I'm trying to use the way that like Google and other things, they, they, they feed you stuff as a recommendation, which is actually not that. It, it's super helpful in one way, but then it kind of narrows your world in a hurry. So I create alternative, like my alter ego kind of stuff where I'll go and like, you know, like, set up stuff where I'll look at different sites and set it up so that I know that feeds me things that are very, very different than what I'm actually looking at now, Um, whether it's political, whether it's cultural, whether it's even sports and stuff like that. And so if if I can't find on my own, I always go visit my alter ego and get new information. That's cool. Well, and tell us, is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and and folks uh, quote it frequently to you? Yeah, it seems a little self-serving for the book, but it, it really is like, this idea that that the pursuit of fulfillment is actually a, a reliable path to success that people come back to like wow I, I can't believe that but it, it it's true when you really think about it it makes a lot of sense the the other one is the sense of this is not about selfishness right that one of the most highlighted things in the book for me is like this quote said to build a great and thriving society we must get the best out of everyone no matter who you are or where you're starting from and the idea that like the pursuit of fulfillment is something that's good for the individual, but it leads to a, a much stronger, more thriving collective. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's ltoddrose or um, toddrose.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd like to issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Like getting back to the theme here, like look, make choices based on fulfillment, not what you think will get you ahead or you'll you know, what you think other people want, and you'll be in the absolute best position to live a life of success and happiness. Beautiful. Todd, this has been a lot of fun, eye-opening, exciting. I wish you tons of luck in all of the good work you're doing at Harvard and Populous and books and more. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really loved Todd's take on micro motives. You could probably tell I asked a very large number of follow-up questions on that. But when a guest tells me that by far it's the most important first step, well, then I, I want to go deep into it. And, and I think it really is interesting to get that level of specificity. And, you know, for me, I was thinking about what my micro motives and one of the things that gets me most, so fired up is discovering something that has powerful implications associated with being more effective. And so in in this career context, hey, how to be awesome at your job, that fits just perfectly. And I get to talk to all these really cool people who who share those things. So it's a pretty great fit. Other times the discovery happens not so much through interviewing, but sometimes I've gone real deep into reading full text of of scientific journal articles. And when I hear that such and such has shown a statistically significant improvement in this thing, it's like, okay, yeah, but how much is that improvement? Is it like a 3% or is it like a 40%? Because if it's like a 40%, that's going to be game changing. I want to know about it. So I have to read the full text of the journal to understand the the context of it. Other times it's by coming up with a creative idea or combining things that just sort of make sense 
in in a happy way. Other times it's going some deep into some data analysis of my own to find, oh my gosh, 80% of this is driven by 20% of that. That could be so huge if I just focus in on that. And uh, other times it's just about, I hear something, the implication strikes me. In, in college, I had a buddy who told me, you know, they say that an hour of belly laughter is worth three hours of sleep or something like that. I thought, well, if that's really true, then instead of sleeping, I could hire someone to tickle me for three hours and then I can use the some of that time to earn the money to pay the tickler and then go forward and and do some more good stuff with that extra sort of net time money produced by this. And and I sort of said that immediately as as my response to this tickling stat, which turns out to be not quite true. It was taken out of context associated with someone who found laughter's ability to reduce pain and thus be able to get good quality sleep. So not quite applicable for energy renewal, but that was my immediate response. And someone said, Pete, it's just insane how your brain works. And there you have it. Anyway, it's not about me, but I just wanted to give you some ideas for those micro motives. What does that look, sound, feel like? Is there a pattern? Is it kind of specific? Is it kind of weird? Is it kind of dorky? And does it get you just disproportionately wildly amped up? Well, then you're on the right track if you zero in on that. So hope you really enjoyed this chat with Todd as much as I did. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash 376. If you haven't already, hope you'll push the subscribe button. You're here for our next guest. It's Dr. Judith Orloff. She is a psychiatrist who has some real perspectives on protecting yourself from energy-sucking vampires, like those influences of people around the office who just kind of kill your mojo and, and fun and how to be more resilient in the midst of that. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.